take your Bibles and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3 today. We're going to look at the fourth of eight visions given to the prophet Zechariah. Vision 1, 2, and 3 have kind of already set the trajectory for us the last several weeks. God is rebuilding His glorious temple city. Vision 1, God returns to Zion to rebuild this city. Vision 2, God destroys all the enemies who oppose this city. Vision 3, God floods the city with His glory and begins gathering people into His presence. But Vision 4 presents us with a colossal problem. The people who are supposed to be in God's presence are filthy with sin and guilt. I mean, it's great that God promises to rebuild His city and then flood His city with His presence. But one of the biggest questions remains, how can guilty people enter God's presence and live? Well, Vision 4 not only raises that very question, it answers it for us. And the answer goes something like this. God removes guilt and then clothes His people to live in His city's abundance. God removes guilt and then He clothes His people to live in His city's abundance. So why don't we walk through chapter 3 together. Let's look first at verses 1 to 3 where we get the colossal problem. The high priest is filthy with sin and guilt. Verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, To accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. In the Old Testament, God appointed priests to represent the people before him. God is holy, and his holiness is intensely good and pure. But that also means that God's holiness was dangerous for anybody who lacked purity. It's kind of like the sun. The sun is good, but if you get too close to it, you'll die. So when God chose to dwell among an unholy people, an impure people like Israel, he appointed these special representatives to stand between his holy presence and his unholy people. The priests were set apart as holy to serve God in this way. They they had to be ritually pure and, and clean and consecrated for this special service. And when they met these 
qualifications, the, the priest would, would enter God's presence on behalf of God's people. And this becomes really clear. You get a great image of this in Exodus chapter 28. Uh, where, when, you, when you look at the, at the garments that, the, that Aaron and the priests wore before the Lord, he, Aaron couldn't just enter God's presence on his own. He had to be clean. And he had to wear the holy garments. And part of these gar- garments, they were, was, was the ephod, and, and, the, and the breastplate of judgment. And the ephod had two stones on the garment. Six names of the tribes of Israel were written on one stone. Six names of the other twelve, uh, of the other, of the twelve were, were written on the other stone. And, and the breastpiece itself then had twelve stones. One stone representing each tribe in Israel. And as Aaron would enter the holy place, he he would represent Israel before the Lord. He, he would carry their names before God's presence. And so the high priest had this crucial representative role. God dealt with his people's sins through the priest. He consecrated the priest so that God might dwell with an unholy people. But here we are in Zechariah... Zechariah gets a vision of God's heavenly courtroom and the angel of the Lord is present, which on many occasions in the Old Testament amounts to a theophany. God himself is manifesting his presence in this this angel. And Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord not with holy garments, but with filthy garments. We're told in verse 4, you glance ahead just a little bit, that the filthy garments represent iniquity. Another word for sin and the guilt that's associated with it. So Joshua is covered with sin. And it's a most repulsive sight. The language here, filthy garments, is often used for human excrement in the scriptures. Joshua is a cesspool. And if this is the state of the high priest in Israel, what do you think the people are like? We don't really have to guess. Haggai chapter 2 tells us what they're like. Anything they touch becomes unclean, whether priests or people. And more than that, what do you think this means for them entering God's holy city? I mean, if their representative is filthy, then what hope do they have before a holy God? So the scene itself is devastating. I mean, after all, they just returned from judgment in exile. That's what's meant here by a brand plucked from the fire. Joshua is like a a smoldering stick. He's plucked from the fiery judgment of exile. Seventy years of paying for their sins. Now they're back, and the high priest is still a cesspool of sin. Exile apparently didn't do the job. It may have punished some sins, but it didn't take away sin, which is the underlying problem. He's still filthy, and that means we're still filthy. What hope do we possibly have, is, would be the idea, swimming in, in their minds. 
On top of that, Satan is at Joshua's right hand, accusing him, pointing out his guilt before the Lord. And notice that Joshua isn't giving a defense. He's not trying to justify himself. He isn't saying anything. He is silent because he knows he really is filthy in sin. And he can't do anything about it. Satan's accusations are true. They're just not the whole story. Thanks be to God. Satan never tells the whole story. And even the parts of the story that he gets right, he twists for his own ends. The other side of the story is that God has grace that's greater than all our sin, as the old hymn says it. God has grace that's greater than all our sin. Even in verse 2, we find hints that God has a plan to deal with this problem of sin. And standing behind that plan is, to begin with, His gracious election of His people. God's grace elects His people to dwell in Jerusalem. He says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God chose to dwell with His people in His new city, Jerusalem. He didn't choose them based on anything glamorous in those people. He chose them simply because He loved them. And if God wants His elect people to fill His new city, then He will ensure they fill it and that they get there. That's the point of the rebuke. Who is Satan to bring a charge against God's elect, in other words? They are his, and he will see to it that they are saved. Joshua is evidence of this. He's the brand plucked from the fire of exile. Joshua is evidence that God's purpose of election stands. You see, God had promised to bring back an elect remnant of his people from exile. Joshua is evidence that God is being faithful to his word. But even more than this, God's electing grace, it never leaves sinners as they are. God's electing grace never leaves sinners as they are. It chooses them as they are. It never leaves them as they are. His electing grace purposes to make them into something beautiful and to take them somewhere wonderful. His particular love for His people moves Him to deal with the problem of sin by cleansing them and by clothing them. That comes in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before Him, Remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And to Joshua He said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So the filthy garments are removed. And it's very clear that this symbolizes taking away Joshua's iniquity. 
And remember, it's not just Joshua's iniquity, it's also the iniquity of the remnant Joshua represents. Priests represent the people. And then the Lord himself clothes Joshua with pure vestments. So it's not something Joshua can do for himself. It's something that only the Lord can do for Joshua. So it's it's all grace here. Grace, the grace of God gives him these pure vestments. And Isaiah helps us a little bit here with the pure vestments. Isaiah 61 verse 10 gives us a, a complimentary picture It's a picture of Zion or the New Jerusalem. They're they're rejoicing over the salvation that that God brings through his his servant, this one that's anointed with the Spirit. And uh, when it gets to Isaiah 61.10, Zion, her song is that of a a bridegroom slash priesthood that's clothed with, with unimaginable beauty. And so Zion says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. So same idea here with the, the pure vestments. They're tailored for glory. Instead of clothes that that give rise to Satan's accusations, these clothes here, they silence all accusations. The Lord essentially wraps Joshua in clothes suited for God's holy presence. And that's where the whole deal with the turban comes in. You you know, you've got the angels, these angels who are taking care of business, and and it's as if Zechariah just can't wait any longer for this crowning moment. He sort of jumps into the vision himself. Let let them put a clean turban on his head, too. You know, let's get that in there. It wouldn't make sense for him to hold back. He's so amazed at what he's seeing. And this turban that he calls for, if you think back again to Exodus 28, it's, it's the turban of the priest as he carried out his priestly duties. And it had a gold plate on the front and inscribed on that gold plate was holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. So why the turban? Well, it's making a statement about the Lord's redeeming work. His work is so complete that Joshua is now set apart to belong to God and to serve God in his holy presence. Which is exactly where the passage moves next. Joshua is now able to serve in God's presence as he ought. He's the priest. He's able to serve now. Read it with me in verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So the consecration of Joshua here has a goal, in other words. To reinstate Joshua as high priest, that's the goal, to reinstate him as the high priest and 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 really to bring reform to the, the, the people he represents as he serves God's house and takes charge of his courts. Joshua isn't made holy to sit on his tail 
He's made holy to serve the people as God's priest. He's consecrated to spread God's holiness. He's consecrated to usher the people back into the Lord's presence. And and even notice that, that he now has the same right of access to God as the angels who helped clothe him earlier. These are the ones who are standing here. Same ones we saw in verse 4. But why even keep this priest thing going after the exile? I mean, if, if the priest failed so miserably in the past, why bother reinstating Joshua after the exile? Well, because there's still a question mark that must be answered. How can the Lord just cleanse Joshua like that? How can he just remove his filthy garments and give him new garments, seemingly without any penalty to be paid? That doesn't fly even in our broken court system. And when it does, there's outrage. What kind of judge sees a man's wrongdoings And here's the true accusations being made against that man. And then just lets him go. Gives him a place of service in his courts. Where's the punishment? Where's justice going to be satisfied? The answer to all those questions is bound up with something God would do centuries beyond Joshua and Zechariah. As long as the Old Covenant is in place, as it still was following the exile, the priests remain a sign for something that God would do in the future. They were to be shadows of the substance that was to come, their faithful service. That's why he's calling Joshua to faithful service. why he called the other priests in the past to faithful service. Their faithful service wasn't an end in itself. It was to be an ongoing pointer to a superior priest. And that's where the passage takes us next in verses 8 to 10. Hear now, O Joshua, this is verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. These, these are his fellow priests. We'll see them later in, verse, in chapter 5. You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. A sign pointing to God's future work through a superior priest. And what kind of priest would this be? Well, to begin, he would be a priest who also serves as king. Behold, the text says, I will bring my servant the branch. Good name, Mike and Sherry. The branch. We know from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4, that he's familiar with the former prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, these guys that were preaching before the exile. And if you go back and you read their books, we find this same title. The branch. Zechariah 
is now expanding on that previous prophecy, and he, he links the priest that he's talking about to this point, he links the priest with the branch. And the branch is a code word for God's anointed king, who eventually comes from David's family line. So, for example, Isaiah 11.1 1 says, or really Isaiah, if you start in Isaiah 10, you get this picture that God, God comes in and he chops down the, the Assyrians like a lumberjack chops down a forest and all you're left with is these stumps lying everywhere. And then Isaiah 11.1 1 gives the message of hope for Israel, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, Jesse was King David's father. And for a branch to come from his shoots was for another descendant to come. And he was supposed to sit on the throne and bring God's kingdom on earth, which is the rest of Isaiah 11. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, also speaks of this branch coming to reign as the new King David and restoring righteousness to all the land and all of God's people within dwell in safety. Next, he would be a priest who establishes a new covenant. He would be a priest who establishes a new covenant. Now, this one's a little bit trickier and involves a little bit more explanation. I'm getting it from verse 9, but you find you read verse 9, things aren't all that simple. I mean, there's a rock with seven eyes, okay? So verse 9, what it's doing is explaining why God is bringing his servant, the branch, and it reads like this in the English Standard Version. For behold, on the, one, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What in the world? I... I didn't read everything on this text, but the ones I did read, I found 14 different interpretations of what's going on here. So I'm going to give you two of the best possibilities, and then I'm going to give you a third possibility, which is the way I read it, which you should also know I found nobody else to be saying. Okay? All right? I don't do that a whole lot. So this is an exception. You're going to have to take your Bible and do as 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says and test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Right? Eat the chicken, spit out the bones. But it would be dishonest of me to pretend like I, I thought it was saying something other than what I think it does. So here are the two views that I think have a lot going for them. The first view is that the stone is a direct reference to the Messiah... And there's a few things that favor this view. I mean, we're dealing with a passage about the Messiah. We just talked about the branch. 
There's also the surrounding context of a temple being built and other prophecies in the Old Testament link the Messiah with a stone, the cornerstone. The weakness I find with this view is that it never gives a very good explanation for the engraving that's mentioned here. And also chapter 4 tells us that Zerubbabel will oversee the temple project, not Joshua. But there's a second view that does give a good explanation for the engraving, and it relates really well to Joshua. I would take this view if it wasn't for the third view that I'm going to give you. So the second view is that the stone with the engraving recalls the various stones on the priestly garments that I talked about earlier. Whether that's the stones with the names of Israel engraved, six here, six here, or the, the, the uh, priest's headdress where it's engraven holy to the Lord. And in either case, it, so in either case, it has something to do with a stone on the priest's garments, and that means the, 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 the branch or the Messiah will come in a priestly role of sorts. That's pretty good. It fits the context really well, and it even matches the way the stones are described in Exodus 28. The difficulty that I have with this view is that it requires you to translate the seven eyes in two different, way, two different ways. So this is like sub-point A and B uh, to view number two. You can either translate it as seven pairs of eyes, which is possible, and that would mean there's 14 eyes, not just seven, and the 14 eyes are the 14 stones on the priest's garments, the two that are here engraven and the 12 that are here. But since there's only one stone in our passage, it seems like that's a stretch. Or better, some translate the, uh, the seven eyes as seven facets of a single stone. That's also possible. Same kind of language is used in Ezekiel 1. Seven facets. In fact, the, the ESV even puts that as one option in the footnote. And uh, at, at that point, it would best refer to the one single stone, they would, they, these guys say, on the, the headdress of the priest, holy, with the engraving, holy to the Lord. It's just that the priest's turban had a gold plate, not a stone. These were stones. This was a gold plate. And the stone in our text seems large enough that it's set before Joshua set before him. So, having said that, here's my view. At least for today. The stone God sets before Joshua is a stone with the promise of the new covenant written on it. And that new covenant is, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The only other place in Scripture where God himself writes something on a stone is with the two tablets given to Moses. The law, the old covenant. Okay? But now what I think he's saying is the reason he's bringing the branch to, is to establish a new covenant with the forgiveness of sins in a single day. 
And that's what's written on the stone. And you might say, well, then what about the seven eyes? Does the new covenant document have seven eyes on it? Well, good question. Two responses. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 10 with me. Zechariah 4.10 tells us exactly what the seven eyes represent. Remember, the visions are interlocking. They're help, helping explain one another. And in this case, Zechariah 4.10 helps us understand Zechariah 3.9. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And the idea in chapter 4 is that as long as God's eyes are set on Zerubbabel and set on his building of the temple, then nothing will stop it from happening. It's a picture of his sovereign gaze on the things that are going on. And I think these are the same eyes set on the establishment of the new covenant through the branch. He just waits till chapter 4 to explain it a bit further. Which leads me to another part of my response. I think a better English translation of verse 9 can be found in the New American Standard Version, which some of you use, and it goes like this. You can see it on the screen. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Literally, in Hebrew, it's on one stone, seven eyes. So you've got to make a decision when you're translating these things. Do I put with in there? Do I put are in there? What do, what do I do with this, these nouns? On one stone, seven eyes. And the in it, New American Standard says, on one stone are seven eyes. Now that could mean the stone itself has seven eyes, like we get in the ESV. But it could also mean the stone has seven eyes gazing upon it, fixed upon it. And that's exactly what we find when these... That's uh, exactly what, what would be implied by chapter 4, verse 10, if these seven eyes are, in fact, the eyes of the Lord. His eyes are fixed on this stone. He will not take his eyes off this stone until the branch finishes the covenant. The promise to establish a new covenant is written by God in stone and its outworking is certain because he doesn't take his sovereign gaze off it until it's all done. And this is why he's sending the branch to establish a new covenant. And that new covenant, guess what it is? The forgiveness of sins, which we find sprinkled throughout the Old Testament anytime it refers to the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins is at the heart of the new covenant. It's at the heart of what Jesus said at the Last Supper when he established the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So take it home, test it, hold fast to what is good. Lastly, the superior priest to come will be a priest who brings an abundant kingdom. He will be a priest who brings an abundant kingdom. Verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now this is a big deal in an agrarian community that's hearing these 
these promises. This is silly talk, actually, in an agrarian community because it's, it, you're talking about great prosperity here. And what's going on is Zechariah is using the categories of the priests, I mean, I mean the priests, of the past to describe the future. The idea of, of everyone inviting his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree is sprinkled throughout the scriptures to signify the abundance of God's final kingdom. The promise begins back in Genesis 49, verse 10, and uh, where God promises a lion-like son from the tribe of Judah. And when the scepter is in his hand, so will be all the obedience of the peoples on earth. And in that kingdom that he rules, guess what it's like? It's so prosperous that people are tying their donkeys up to the vine. Like, we've got too many grapes. Get the donkeys over there. Going to eat the, do- eat the grapes up. Right? They're using wine as they're in their washing machines. It's It's crazy. So the earth is, is prosperous. This, this, this lion-like son from Judah will establish his kingdom. And then, then you move forward a little bit further to the kingdom of Solomon, who is a son of Judah through David. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25. When the kingdom is set in place, it says, Judah and Israel lived in safety every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And the question of the Old Testament, is this it? Is this the kingdom? Is it, is it here? No, everything tanks after that and you go into exile. Well, the prophets then pick up on the same imagery. This Judah kingdom's coming and they start pointing people to the future after the, before, during, and after the exile. Hey, that wasn't the kingdom, it's still coming. Okay, that's what's going on here. It's just that when they point it out, it's not just going to be everybody in Israel inviting them to come into the vine. Everybody on earth will be doing the same. You can find that in Micah 4, for example, in Isaiah 25, Jeremiah 31, and Amos 9. So this is the superior priest Zechariah waited for. He would serve as king. He would establish a new covenant in which there's true forgiveness of sins. And he would bring his people into an abundant kingdom. And you know where I'm going next. Our New Testament tells us that all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills every part of Zechariah's message and there's no better place in the New Testament where all four of our categories come together than in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book where priest, king, covenant, and kingdom all weave together in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty, king, right? After making purification for sins, priest. 
And that's what the rest of the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus was made to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, after the order of Melchizedek. Why Melchizedek? Because he's a priest king. And that makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. Why better? Well, Hebrews 7 tells us why it's better. The former priests think Joshua here and his little group of fellas earlier, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Joshua died and stayed in the grave because he was a sinner. Jesus died and rose from the grave because he was not a sinner. Consequently, Hebrews 7, 25 goes on, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or again in Hebrews 9, Jesus has opened the way for us into the Holy of Holies. He gives us complete access to God. How? Well, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he, nobody else, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise and eternal inheritance. There's the kingdom the abundant kingdom again, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See how these are all being woven together in Jesus, the high priest slash king. Hebrews 10, Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down at the right hand of God as king waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that means at the end of chapter 12 of Hebrews, we have received an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is how it works out in Christ. That's Hebrews in summary. And that's how God answers the questions raised earlier about how he can cleanse and clothe Joshua so freely and let him serve in his presence. Jesus is the answer. Jesus silences the accusations. His blood takes away our sins. His righteousness gives us access to God's throne. He rules the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And his salvation suits us for God's abundant kingdom. And that is really good news. Really good news for sinners like us. So where might some of these things meet you and me this week? I think there are too many to count, but I'm going to give you four. Four big areas where Vision 4 led me this week. First of all, we have got to remember that only Jesus' righteousness saves and not our own. This is for non-Christians and Christians. Remember, preach this to yourself. Only Jesus' righteousness saves, not your own. 
Vision 4 is one of the simplest illustrations of our salvation, especially our justification. This is exactly what God does for us when we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus Christ, God removes your guilt. He takes away all your filthy garments. And, 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 He gives you Christ's righteousness. He robes you with pure vestments. The righteousness that belongs solely to Jesus Christ God counts it as your own, and he sees you in those robes. You've got to pay attention here, because some people, when they're talking about the gospel, they totally miss the and part. When God justifies a sinner, he doesn't just take away your sins. He gives you all of Christ. He doesn't just get rid of all the guilt you earned. He gives you all the righteousness Christ earned for you. You cannot stand before the holy judge, the holy judge merely acquitted for your sins. Won't work. You, you must also be righteous in a positive sense. Not just lacking the bad things you did and were forgiven for. You have to be righteous to stand before God. And Christ became a man and obeyed his Father at every point, the climax of which is his death on the cross, so that his righteousness and his obedience and his morality would all be transferred to you on faith. That's conversion, folks. It all becomes yours the moment you trust in Christ. If you're not wearing these garments, you will not be able to enter God's presence. I said wearing them, not knowing about them. It does no good to be able to talk about the garments if they're not on you. They must be part of you and shape you and transform you and thrill you. If that's not true, you won't be able to stand in God's presence. But you can have these garments simply by trusting in Christ to save you. He will give them to you and he will set you apart as holy to the Lord. Then what's harder to do, harder to do is to keep trusting that Jesus' righteousness saves, not your own. And that turns up in different ways in each of our lives, doesn't it? For example, maybe to my fellow husbands, you know those moments when your wife comes to you and gently corrects your sin, tells you ways that you can lead the family better, maybe suggest that your tone was a bit harsh earlier. And you receive her criticisms so well. You welcome them. She's an heir of the grace of life. That's not usually how it goes, is it? Rather than receiving her criticisms and welcoming the Lord's grace through her, everything in you cringes at the thought that you could possibly be a sinner in this moment. Sit in the kitchen, 
for 15 minutes trying to creatively find ways to justify this and defend this and why I said this and why my tone went up like this. In those moments, you are being tempted to trust in your own righteousness to save you. Rather than casting yourself down at the cross, you want to try to stand. You have things to say before God. You want to give a defense. And that doesn't fly when you live in God's presence. Admit your sin and trust in Christ's righteousness to save you. Or maybe you're at the ball game with the family and your child is acting up in front of others and as it goes on, you begin to get embarrassed and you start wondering what others are thinking about you and you begin to fear everybody's judgment about your parenting to the point that you find yourself getting angry. This little one smearing your reputation as the good parent you really are. And in those little moments, Satan loves to chip away at your trust in Christ's righteousness to save you. You will not stand before God based on your superior parenting skills or your homeschool education of your children or anything that you're doing as a parent. You will stand solely on Christ's righteousness given to you. And that frees you to be patient with your children. And to find your acceptance with God, not with what other people are saying about you or thinking about you. Who cares what they're saying about you if God has accepted you? <laughs> or maybe there are decisions you've made in the past that weren't good. And you carry, you carry the consequences of your actions even as a Christian. It's, 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 it's not always the case. If you become a Christian, that all of the consequences of past sins just fall. Some of you are in, a lot of, all of us are in Christ, and we're still carrying the consequences of past sins. They follow us around. They won't let go, even though you try to hide them. You feel ashamed, like an outcast at times. Shared the gospel with a fellow on Wednesday who stopped by the church. He was ashamed to ask me for something to eat. He said he felt like scum for some of the decisions he made. He, he went on about how he regretted his tattoos and, and the way he looked before others. And I said, well, have I got a story for you? And we had dinner and I took him to Joshua, the high priest. It's perfect. Maybe choices you that you've made leave you feeling much like this friend that I met on Wednesday. You have regrets over the way you've lived. Listen, the answer is not to go into hiding or to live your life hiding. You may be able to hide things from man, but you cannot hide from God. And He is way more important. His opinion about you is way more important. And you know what? He can hide you in the radiance of His Son forever. You don't need to go looking for things in this world to hide yourself. 
God hides his people in the robes of righteousness. He can clothe you with splendor. Listen, he shared your shame and he bore your shame in the cross. And that makes him a high priest who can both sympathize with your weakness. I'm back in the book of Hebrews right now. He can both sympathize with your weakness and pull you out of it into glory with him. Who cares if the devil or other people accuse you of filth? Luther once said, let them list all the accusations they want and then right at the bottom of the list, forgiven and justified in Christ. That's where God's eyes are fixed. We talked about it earlier. Satan's eyes are fixed on the garments, the filth, filthy garments. Where are God's eyes fixed? On the new covenant, forgiveness of sins. And that's where our look should be as well. Only Jesus' righteousness saves, not your own. So throw yourself on him every moment of the day. Walk in the light as he is in the light. First John says, and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. Let your new garments free you to live in the acceptance of that truly matters with God. Your sin does not have the last word. Christ does. Second, view your fellow believers as clothed in Christ. View your fellow believers as clothed in Christ. There is a community dimension to this prophecy. Remember, Joshua is representing the people as the high priest. And then also, right at the end of verse 10, did you notice it? In that day, every one of you, what are they doing? Inviting his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's the community of the new heavens and the new earth. speaks to the kingdom we will share with each other in the future, but the future is supposed to shape how we view each other now. And these people want to be around each other. I can't help but consider how Christ's righteousness has bearing on this. As everybody is reflecting the beauty of Jesus, they want to be around each other. If the Lord looks on his people as clothed in Christ's righteousness, then Ought we to look, ought we not look to each other through the same lens? Let's say that a, a fellow Christian offends you or does things you don't like. On those occasions, can you look at them as not just forgiven, but clothed in the beautiful garments of salvation? Can you disagree with one another over non-gospel issues, method of education, medicine, food, 
and you disagree on these non-gospel issues and walk away with the same fondness that God has for them in Christ. You're both wearing the same clothes in Christ. And they're just as beautiful as yours. If you can't see that, perhaps you think that you're more worthy of the kingdom than they are. And that's self-righteousness. Or you need scripture to give you new eyes to see God's people as they really are. As they really are right now when they're trusting in Christ. The gospel creates something astounding. A whole community of people robed in Christ's righteousness and relating to one another in light of that righteousness. So do you see each other that way? Do you treat each other that way? Do you speak about each other that way? This is who you are, Redeemer Church. And the scriptures dare us to believe it about one another. Third, serve each other as fellow priests in Christ. Serve each other as fellow priests in Christ. We have new clothes and they make all of us fit to serve before God together as priests. This is the priesthood of all believers. Jesus is our great high priest, but the New Testament also refers to us as his kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a royal priesthood. And that means you have access to the presence of God, you can call on him for grace, and you can bring each other before his throne. Your daily life becomes set apart for his service to spread his holiness in your marriage and to your children and to your co-workers with love and truth and, and deeds of mercy. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do good and share with others for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And he's talking to the church. The church is a priest. And when we do good and when we share our stuff, it says that these are sacrifices before God that, are, that please Him. So as you learn of each other's needs, meet them. Reach out to one another with hospitality. Find ways to, to intentionally keep each other prayed for and cared for. Counsel each other with the same sympathy that Christ, our high priest, shows us. Direct each other away from what is unholy and point each other to what is holy. You know why? The closer we are to God's holiness, the more we will be like Him. And we will look like Him. You've all been clothed to take each other into the very presence of God. You've been given the right of access. The veil has been torn and the way opened by Christ. So let's live together before his presence this way. Lastly, come often to your high priest for more grace. Come often to your high priest 
for more grace. We have great needs, especially in relation to, to growing in Christ-likeness. I mean, we get weak in the fight against sin. We get weary in our love for others. We get dull to the glory of God. We begin to doubt His promises. And we need more grace daily. When you are clothed in Christ's garments, Hebrews 4 says that we have access to the throne of grace to help in time of need. Ephesians 2 says that we can come boldly before God, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. If you belong to Jesus, you are welcome in God's presence all the time. Even when, you are, even when you sin, you are welcome. Your new garments fit you for heaven. They will allow you entry into Christ's abundant kingdom. So shall we cry out for more of this grace now in prayer?